Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Jim, I would love to talk a little bit on the process side. You've worked on a lot of films, as you mentioned, and a lot of them are successful films. So just on the writing side, you just mentioned your passion for storytelling. Is there anything about those films that were so successful from your perspective as a producer for the writers that are out there working on their scripts, is there a quality? Is there a thing about those films that you think made them successful? You know, it's the thing that George taught me, which is story, story, story. It's all story. And I mean, you can have everything else can be great and the movie can suck because nobody cares about the characters. It's like, oh, great. Who cares? You know, you don't care what they do, where they're going, what's happening. There's nothing about it that's sort of setting it up. If you look at all of the, you know, I mean, that's why I was so lucky early in my career to work on such great movies. And if you trace it back to why are they so great, is that it's all about story. It's all about characters. It's about the characters in American Graffiti. It's about the, you know, what's happening in the conversation with Gene Hackman playing Harry Call. You know, you know, it's like stuff that's incredibly dynamic and dramatic and it's pulling you into the screen you know beyond that you know then you want to surround yourself with all of the great collaborative artists who help you get the movie made but really it all starts with story i mean i you know it's very rare that i could read a screenplay and go oh it's a great movie you know because you're like it's rare that i would read a movie and say it's a great script and the movie also not be great it may not be completely commercial, you know, but it would still be a great movie and it would, you know, people would appreciate it and like it and it would get good reviews and all of those things. So again, really, I'd say really it's all about story. It's all about what's happening to these characters. And it's not just your lead character, it's every character, which is critical in the piece that every character has to have his or her own motivation for what it is that's doing it. You know, it's like, well, why is this character doing that? What's driving this character to go A, B, C, or D? What's driving this villain to do that? I mean, and that's the other strong thing is that your villains have to be as interesting and charismatic and driven as your protagonists do. You know, I mean, Darth Vader is just as interesting as Luke Skywalker in that sense. You know, I guess Star Wars is a little bit different because you're never quite sure. I mean, what is it that is driving the Empire and the Emperor and Darth Vader? be such evil guys and you know other than it's good and evil in that sense i mean but luke's story is just you know it's just brilliant it's just brilliant classic you know mythologically based storytelling you know you've got the hero you know this orphan kid you know his aunt and uncle get you know burned to a crisp when he's out riding around he comes home they're gone he's got you know where does he go he connects with you know obi-wan kenobi and and he's off on an adventure, flying off on a spacecraft with Han Solo, you know, R2-D2 and C-3PO. I mean, it's just fucking brilliant, you know, and off they go to fight the evil empire. 
you know, for him only to find out, you know, in subsequent movies that he's the bad guy's son, right? And Princess Leia is his sister. It's got these, you know, these great underpinnings for what's happening and what's motivating all these characters. You know, and beyond that, you've got to make sure you've got the right cast members and you've got the right technical people around you taking all of these good elements and drawing them all together into a good movie. But, you know, I mean, that's the thing. If you look at any of these movies, it's like, well, what is it? It's all story. You know, you have to care about the characters and what they're doing and then go out and find your audience for that particular picture. So, I mean, that would, you know, if I were to say to any writer, it's like, you know, concentrate on your characters. You know, who are they and what do they want? What are they learning and how are they changing? You know, and how does that, you know, evolve the story forward? as you get into it. And then you've also got to understand your medium, whether you're telling a 20-minute story or a two-hour feature story, or you're trying to launch into a series where you're dealing with a, you know, a group of characters who are all you know, revolving around each other and whatnot. But the thing that you want to do, in, from my point of view, in telling a great movie story is that you want to set the hook right away. You know, early on, you create whatever the conflict is, you know, that so-called inciting incident, you know, that launches the adventure of whatever the story is that you're off on. And once you set that hook, you want to keep the tension of that line from the screen to that emotional center of your viewer tight. So it's always pulling them into the screen. You never want to do something that lets them sit back and think like, well, what's going on now? Or this is a little boring. Or you need to wait to kind of like, Keep it moving forward and, you know, going forward quickly. And, you know, a lot of the early movies, they're, you know, they, they do that beautifully. You know, movies in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And I was particularly lucky. I mean, this is interesting. I'm talking about my career is that I came in in the early 70s when there was this, you know, kind of renaissance or resurgence of, not really a resurgence, it was a birth of independent movie making, that the studios were willing to take a chance on smaller story driven movies you know which when you take a look at american graffiti or the conversation or coming home or thieves like us and they were making smaller pictures because they thought there was an audience out there to go see there and then they were and then it wasn't until you know 77 when close encounters and star wars came out you know following on jaws that the movie business started to change and it changed big time it was like oh well we can do better if we start making these big films and we've got a sequel then it became the sequel, big event movie. And like, where are we now in 2020? You know, 45 years later, 40 years later, unfortunately, you know, it's like comic book after comic book after comic book, you know, these big event movies that are the ones that are driving the motion picture business around the world. You know, I'm not a Marvel fan. I've just never gotten into all those characters. Just never grabbed me in any way. Although sometimes when I do see some of them, I certainly appreciate the filmmaking, but from a story point of view, it's a, it's a bit of a yawn, although the effects are great and everything. It's a real challenge from a production point of view to make those kind of movies. I mean, I was the same way about the Hobbit movies. I was never a, I was never a Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah, they were great looking movies and stuff, but they never, you know, they never did much for me. I guess I didn't read the Hobbit, the trilogy growing up, and so it was like I used to shrug my shoulders a little bit. Although Peter Jackson's a great filmmaker. Looking back on some of his other movies, they're just brilliant. You know, I always did like the Mad Max movies, though, I have to say. But 
I'm a big George Miller fan, so and had the chance to meet him and work with him a little bit. George is a great guy. You just listed some of the ways that storytelling has changed. What would you say is the biggest thing that's changed from when you started out to now? I don't think that storytelling has changed because I think that good storytelling is always good storytelling. You know, I don't think that changes. I think audiences have gotten much more sophisticated than they used to be. And a lot of that has to do with there's a cinematic sophistication that audiences have now, mostly because of television, and absorbing and reading visual information faster than they had before. And you can notice that as you go back and you were to watch, you know, a Star Wars movie of a couple of years ago or a Christopher Nolan movie versus watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, or some of the David Lean movies. They're all beautiful movies, but audiences are far more sophisticated now in understanding story more quickly and understanding visuals more quickly. And I think a lot of that probably also has to do with, you know, with maybe with TV and TV commercials and stuff. You know, you can tell something in 30 seconds. It used to be told in three or four minutes. Audiences don't need to be hit over the head. You know, stuff can be shown very quickly and they can appreciate nuance amongst characters faster. You know, people are just more, they're smarter. It's a smarter audience than it used to be. And so you can take advantage of that. And the same thing is sort of true in the writing is that you don't write on the nose, you write off the nose, if you know what I mean. So when you've got a scene, I mean, and one of the brilliant examples of that is, I mean, there are lots of great examples, but the one that immediately comes to mind, because just because I was reading about it the other day, I was reading a Larry Kasdan interview that he did with the Writers Guild, and he was talking about Empire, and in particular, he was talking about the scene between Princess Leia and Han Solo in the snow cave where he's Han's about to take off, and she's, you know, asking him to stay and help the rebellion. And he's saying to her, oh, it's because you love me. And she's saying, no, I don't love you. Well, she does love him. And the beauty of the scene is that it's not what it's written about. It's the way the actors are performing the scene. You know, she says, I don't love you, but she does love him. So that's what's nice about that particular performance is that she's got to say one thing and act something else, you know, which is what Kirshner was so beautiful at in directing that film. He was so good at bringing the, you know, inner motivation of the characters out. You know, that's when you get to climatic sequences that things are the best. It's watching, you know, saying one thing and meaning something else, because I think that audiences can appreciate that and are, you know, particularly keen to, you know, understanding that when they see it on screen, because they're more sophisticated than they used to be. You know, not that they couldn't do it back with, the, you know, great films of the 40s and 50s and stuff, but I think more so than before. You know, there's more sophistication there. So I would, you know, it's like, say to the writers, it's like, don't beat your audience over the head. It's not necessary. You may need to beat the studio executives that don't understand it. They tend to be a little doltish when it comes to that sort of stuff. But your audiences are not too doltish. They can pick up on that, you know, very quickly. What about now? What are you working on now? Are there projects? I know you've mentioned that you were retired from the filmmaking side of things, but are you really? And do you have projects that you want to make? Walk us through where you're at right now and the stories that you might want to tell. I have a few pet projects that I've had for a number of years that have resonated with me that I don't want to talk about. You know, I don't want to pitch a bunch of projects to you or your audience. But there are things that if I could, you know, find a way to go do that, I would be interested in doing that. Right now, during the pandemic, though, I don't think anything's happening in the movie business. 
you know, it's so difficult to get a movie made. People aren't making movies. It's just not happening. And I think that things are sorting out. And a lot of successful writers that I know who have screenplays are turning them into sort of television series that they can stream into multi-episode type situations. And I think it's just a really, it's just an evolving, difficult time in the movie and TV business right now. I mean, the pandemic shut everything down, you know, basically, you know, unless you come up with some sort of clever ways to go about doing it. I mean, the other thing is, is that I choose now not to live in Los Angeles and the movie business is down in LA. It always has been in LA, you know, or it's in New York and that's not where I'm choosing to locate myself. I mean, fortunately, I don't have to be down there. I've spent a good deal of my career in Los Angeles and it's not the place that I choose to live at the moment. You know, it'd be interesting to see how all that changes as well with, you know, what's happening with, you know, what we're doing right now, which is this Zoom call. You know, so much work is being done that way. And at first it was very strange and weird and it's not quite the same as seeing somebody in person, but, you know, at least we're not infecting each other with COVID. So that's something to be set for. And not only that, I mean, you're in New York and I'm in California and here we are having a conversation. They're very easy to do and we're looking at each other and we can kind of get a sense. It's not like being in the same room. You know, we can't walk outside and get a drink at the bar or something like that, but I can, you know, watch you and you can watch me and you can get a sense from people's body language about how a conversation is going and what you're doing. And I really do expect there to be a lot more of that, you know, going forward in the future in every business, not just the movie business, but every business, because I think that people will realize like, yeah, I could take a, you know, you're a writer and I'm a studio executive and you've got a picture you want to pitch to me. And it's like, okay, great. And it's like, do I need to, you know, do you need to get on a plane and fly to LA and spend a few thousand dollars and, you know, take, you know, 80 hours of your time when you could pick up the phone and make a Zoom call, you know, or whatever conferencing that you're using to make the same pitch. Because when you come right down to it, it's all, it's all story, story, story. You know, what's the story? What's it about? You know, that's the key. So, you know, I expect that to, you know, potentially change too, as well. You know, and then there's the whole business side. How is all the streaming side going to change the star system and the back-end participations and the front-end money-making? And it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. The movie business has always been very heavy with gatekeepers, you know, the lawyers and the agents and all of these people and different motivations driving people. It's kind of very tough that way. And I, it'll be interesting to see how all that changes. But when, you know, you know, good story tends to, you know, percolate up to the top. You know, people used to joke you could take a great screenplay and throw it on the Santa Monica freeway and eventually it'll get made. You know, somebody will find it, somebody will read it. And because it's a great story, somebody will get a hold of it and it'll get made into a movie. You know, it just depends on who it is. I'm just a big believer in hiring the right people and letting them do what they're good at, you know, and not letting, as I like to say, not letting too many people pee on your tree along the way and you know screw up your movie or story with bad ideas not that good filmmakers don't make mistakes they do but you know at the same time it's like you know you got a great director let them go make a great movie you know let them do what they know how to do but it doesn't that doesn't always happen so jim are you ready for a couple bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions absolutely sure the first one I just have to ask because, you know, obviously we've talked about all your films. You've worked with a ton of legend, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman. 
the list goes on and on and on. Maybe is there one, you know, experience that stands out, you know, working with legends like this? Is there any anecdotes, thoughts? No, there are lots of individual stories, but there isn't, you know, one particular story. I'll give you a couple of insights that I've had about making movies. One of the first ones, but it's not only true about movie making, it's true about life. And it was something that I noticed when I was an assistant director trainee working on the streets of San Francisco TV show. And earlier we were talking about the TV series making is very quick, 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 very tight, moving, 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 going to two or three locations a day, shooting eight pages, you know, bringing actors in and out, et cetera. And the observation is that what's worse than something going wrong is not having someone to blame it on. What that's about is that something goes wrong and people will spend more time trying to figure out whose fault it was to cover their own ass than they will trying to fix the problem and get the shot or just move on from whatever it is. And then when you're not spending $5,000 a minute or $100,000 an hour or a day or whatever it might be, then you can kind of go back and say, okay, we had a problem. There was a, you know, a miscommunication. How do we fix it so it doesn't happen again? It's like, well, you know, who do we discipline? Who do we fire? Who do we teach? How do we correct the issue? But let's get the shot. We're losing the light. The sun's going down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That would be one observation. The other observation, which is also true in life as it is in movie making, is an old phrase which is called assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. What happens is oftentimes when there is a fuck-up, the first thing somebody says is, well, I assumed, blah, 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 blah. And that's, you know, when you need to be clear about something, it's not an assumption. You make it, you know, straightforward and clear and direct and whatever information it is you're trying to partake. It's never just like, well, I assumed he was going to take care of it, you know, and that's why assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. But as far as like great moments, there have been lots of great moments, you know, for lots of different reasons and things that have happened, you know, lots of funny things and stuff like that. There are a couple of things that I remember, and it has to do with meeting movie stars. Because, you know, although I was in this business and I worked with lots of stars and got to know everybody, and, you know, it was always a treat. I remember Sam Jaffe came up to do a guest appearance on the streets of San Francisco TV show. And for me to meet Sam Jaffe was just like, oh my goodness, what a treat this is. This is just, you know, it was just amazing for me just to kind of meet this guy in the flesh who I had grown up seeing, you know, in the Saturday afternoon TV matinees. And the same thing was also true when I was working on Coming Home because Henry Fonda came to visit Jane Fonda one day on the set. And I got to meet Henry Fonda. And again, you know, growing up as a fan of movies, to meet Henry Fonda was like, oh my God, this legend just came alive in the flesh and blood. And I got to shake his hand and meet this guy. And, you know, and even though I, at that time, I had worked with, you know, lots of movie stars, you know, eaten with them, talked to them, whatever, it was still, you know, it was just, you know, anyway, when you asked the story this afternoon, it was one of those, you know, it's like, well, what are the treats? Those are, you know, kind of the treats, you know, that, I mean, you know, working with Warren Beatty for a while, that was a trip, you know, Warren's like Hollywood royalty. What a great character he was. You know, every movie that I worked on has a story attached to it, but, you know, it would take a while, it'd be another hour on the phone with you to take you through, you know, 14 different funny stories of things that happen that are like, you know, classic, ready when you are CB stories, you know, 
is there one of those directors you worked with who had maybe the best process or that you were in the most awe of their creative process? No, they were they were all different in a way. Everybody was a little bit different and some I liked much more than others, you know, just because of who they were as people, you know, and how they treated other people and treated the crew and the way they worked. You know, I liked everybody, you know, and they were all great in, you know, each of their own ways. You know, I mean, it's like, I'm trying to think of like one sentence about all these great directors. It's just, you know, I could do it, but it would probably take a while. And I wouldn't want to, I'm not really like to choosing favorites, you know, but they were all very different in their, you know, in their style and what they brought to their craft and skill set. We'll save it for another podcast, all the different styles and how they worked and whatnot. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. The next bonus question. You were an associate producer on Empire Strikes Back and a co-producer on Return of the Jedi. At this point, you know, with Star Wars being such a huge phenomenon, there's so much detail. People going back to the old films, looking for Easter eggs, and even for the new films, same thing. We all, as Star Wars fans, know a lot about Star Wars, but is there anything we don't know from the set of Empire Strikes Back or from Return of the Jedi? Are there any things you can think of that are, you know, interesting facts of working in that that maybe we've never heard? The minor fact I would say is that in the interior of the snow monster cave in Hoth, after Luke gets knocked off the Tauntaun, which I'm sure most people know that that whole initial scene was written because Mark got into a bad car accident between the two pictures and they needed to explain why his face, you know, got mangled up between the two. But in the scene where he's hanging upside down in the snow and he comes to and he's reaching for the lightsaber to hop into his hand so he can cut a hole in the ceiling and free himself and run out of the cave. When he's reaching for his foot, that's my foot and hand. And when he's reaching for the wow. lightsaber to hop into his hand, that's my hand. So that was just like, you know, oh, we need a shot here. We need a cut there to finish those sequences off and stuff. 
there's also another scene when he gets sucked up into the snow walker after his speeder crashes. He like launches a repelling gun up into the top of the bottom of the snow walker and like carries himself up and throws a bomb and so you know one of those shots is me too you know going being hoisted up the line or something like that so i bottle double mark a couple of times those are minor you know the funny joke about that is that when my son was four he went on a trip like a camping trip and the counselor said so what does your dad do and my son said oh my dad's luke skywalker (laughs) you know he was four and he didn't quite understand (laughs) Counselor walked over. It was like, you know, a parent kid thing. And Counselor walked over to my wife and said, Are you married to Mark Hamill? And she said, Oh, no. <laughs> Did he tell you the story about how dad was Luke Skywalker or something? You know, other things from Star Wars like that. You know, there's a lot of funny things that, like, a few funny things that happened. Nothing that you would, aren't like Easter eggs that I can mm-hmm. think of in the, uh, I'd have to. What about Return of the Jedi? No, the only fun fact about, I don't know if it's a fun fact about Jedi is that. We had at the time, you know, the greatest collection grouping of little people since the Wizard of Oz, all staying together in a few hotels in Smith River, California. There were a few marriages that, you know, came out of that, and you know, other kind of relationships and whatnot, which is great fun. And the only other funny thing I can think of from that, unfortunately, is that by the time we were done shooting all the Ewoks on second unit, they were constantly complaining about how awful their costumes were smelling, you know, from having worn those, you know, fur costumes for weeks and weeks and weeks running around the woods and the forest. I mean, that's just like, you know, nothing in particular about the movie. Did you ever expect that the Boba Fett character would become such a phenomenon and spin off into The Mandalorian? No, I never would have. I never would have predicted that one. You know, Boba Fett was just this minor bounty hunter character, and it's really interesting. It's like, so why did he become so? Why did Boba Fett become so popular? It's just like one of those things. It's just like a piece of you know, cinematic culture that's like, well, I don't know, he got me. Maybe it has a lot to do with the quality of his outfit. It's so cool looking, and I remember when you know Joe Johnston you know, if I'm not mistaken, designed it and had it painted and, you know, put the dings in it, the markings, and, you know, it didn't look brand new, but it looked like, you know, this bounty hunter had been used up a little bit. Second to last question, if you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? It doesn't have to be fast food, but we always ask that. You know, it's a really good question. Yeah, it wouldn't be fast food. You know, (laughs) I'd want to go somewhere and sit down you know, someplace quiet and have a long meal with somebody and talk to them about their work. You know, I don't know the answer to that. You know, there are so many different writers. For some reason, I don't know why Preston Sturgis keeps popping into my head, you know, that I would, you know, love to go sit and talk to him. So I'm going to have to take a pass on that one. Court, I'm not, I just don't, you know, I can think of writers I'd be happy to go talk to anyway. Now about, you know, it's always interesting to do that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get a group of writers together, take like three or four writers and, you know, start a conversation with all of them and let them all talk to each other. Is it, you know, opposed to me just, uh, you know, one-on-one? You know, a lot, I got to tell you, a lot depends, you know, to answer that. It's like, well, who are the people? And are they assholes or are they nice people? You know, are they alcoholics or are they not? And, you know, what kind of lunch is it going to be? And are they, you know, are going to want to, you know, talk about, you know, the craft of writing? And you, you'd want to go find, I'll tell you, this last weekend is very sad. A great writer passed away named Walter Bernstein, 
who I knew quite well, who was a lovely guy who wrote a lot of wonderful movies. And he had a very funny quote in his obituary in the New York Times when he was a student at Dartmouth. He was part of like a movie club and he used to review the movies that were coming in. And he would say, well, you know, the thing about viewing movies that it's after you've seen the movie and writing a review, I mean, that's easy. It's just, you know, you've seen the movie, you write the review. It's just like criticism. But the trick, he says, the real art form is writing the review before you've seen the movies. Now that's art. I can see Walter saying that. That was very funny. Walter was a great writer. You know, it's sort of like getting back to, you know, writers, because I was thinking about this before, is that, you know, a suggestion I would make for aspiring writers, or even writers who are having a block, is to, but more for aspiring writers, or even, you know, published writers, is to find movies that you love and go read the scripts for those films, and sort of appreciate what good writing is. There's also a particular talent to reading a screenplay. I mean, I know people say, oh, yeah, I have to read the script. And people say, I don't know how to read a movie script. It doesn't make sense to me. And I guess that there's a certain education in learning how to read a script because you get distracted by the, you know, interior study, daytime, you know, the headlining of what a particular scene is, which you just have to kind of blow by. But, you know, I guess my advice to writers would be to, you know, use fewer words, like fewer notes, Mozart. I don't mean it that way. I mean, you know, scripts are blueprints. And just remember that you're writing a blueprint for a sequence that people are going to add their value to. It's important to be descriptive, but not to be over-descriptive and not to tell a director how to actually direct a film. It's like, you know, set it up, point out the important things and let the characters do the work. Love that. You actually beat me to my next question, which was, if you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to aspiring writers, what would you say? You just said a really valuable lesson for writers. Is that the one thing you would choose to say? Is there something else? That would be the first thing that I would choose to say is that, you know, go read other screenwriters, read their work. And I think it's, you know, what's interesting now is that I think it's a lot more available now than it was when I was starting out. When I was starting out, it was impossible to read somebody's script because you couldn't get it. The only way to get a script was to go to the Larry Edmonds bookstore down in Hollywood, you know, and try to see if they had a copy of the script somewhere. It was impossible. But now I think the scripts are all over the place. And I think that the Writers Guild publishes the scripts every year. You know, I know I'm a WGA member, and every year I get all the potential nominees. Screenplays are sent to me. So it's always very interesting to read a screenplay. And there were always writers who I would work with. And anytime they would write something, even if it wasn't for me, I always asked them to send it to me because I love their writing. And it was always such a treat to watch how they you know, brought a picture to life. You know, because they were such great writers. They had such a, you know, such a way with words. It was really such a treat. You know, very interesting. Love that. I have one last bonus question. Just because we were talking about fast food, we were joking about it. What was the craft services on Star Wars movies? <laughs> Do you remember? I think that the whole craft service lunchtime food thing didn't become as significant or as important probably until like the you know, the 90s or something like that, when food became more significant in people's lives. So on The Empire Strikes Back, when we were shooting on the glacier, when we were shooting on the glacier and sub-zero weather, the joke used to be is that, you know, most of the stuff that we were served for lunch were like thick, saucy, stewy, goulash, pasta-type things. And the joke always was, by the time it hit your plate, to the time you got it in your mouth, the noodles could be frozen. It was so cold and windy outside. 
that if you weren't like sitting in an indoor, a warming hut of some sort, but you actually like got it in the hut and walked to some other place like to get sheltered from the wind while you were eating, the noodles would freeze on the plate. It was so cold. I used to joke that it was so cold that when we used to pee, the urine would freeze before it hit the ground. When you were like urinating, you know, off in the snow somewhere, it was that cold outside on Empire. It was just outrageous. The food, there was nothing, nothing special about the food, you know, back then. It was just motion picture catering, you know, generally pretty crappy. It didn't get better. And, you know, more important, and not like the spreads that you see now. I mean, craft service back then were, you know, coffee, tea, and donuts, and that was it. There was no, it's not like it is now. It sort of stepped up like a whole other level, you know, to what you see now, you know, like in TV shows or movies or stuff like that. It's sort of, I think that people realized, you know, as budgets, you know, increased and whatnot, that these things were more important to people than they were then. Back then, it was just like, movie food. You were lucky if you had a good caterer. You know, you tried to get a good caterer on a show, but it was still like, well, what's for lunch? It's like A or B and, you know, on you go. You know, they weren't these like fancy spreads. Same for Return of the Jedi, nothing memorable about the food. Oh yeah, definitely the same. Yeah. That stuff didn't freeze on Jedi. We had good caterers and the food was okay, but it was, you know, not like now. There weren't, you know, back in the early 80s, I don't recall that we had, you know, oh, this is the vegetarian special and this is the non-meat special. And, you know, it was like, well, what do you got? It's like, well, we got this and that. If you're, you know, you're not eating red meat, you're not, you know, make do with whatever the veggies and the few of the side dishes are. Would the talent eat the same food as everyone else? Absolutely. You know, we were all there together. Everybody would, you know, get in line and let them go through. And, you know, maybe if you had an actor who had to get back to work before the other actors. You would, you know, hold off on the other actors. Or, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, movie making, you release an actor a few minutes before the crew gets released because you're done with them and you're lining up the first shot after lunch, you know, and people are moving the camera or doing stuff. So you don't need the actors there anymore after the first rehearsal. So, you know, you let them go and they go get their food and, you know, go sit down and eat. And, you know, it depends on the set, depends on the actor, depends on where you're shooting, you know. You know, sometimes the actors would eat in their, you know, motor homes. They'd often eat with the crew. You know, they were, you know, they're just people. They like to sit down and have a laugh at lunch, and, you know, join everybody else and, you know, sit with the director, sit with, you know, other people on the show, sit with their friends in hair and makeup or other crew members that they get to know. You know, the thing about movie making, it turns into a big happy family. You become this very intense family unit for, you know, a period of time where you're with these people you know, 10 to 14 hours a day, five or six days a week for some extended period of, you know, eight to 15 weeks, they become your family members. You get to know these people better than, you know, your wives and your girlfriends, you know, or boyfriends or, you know, whatever it would be, you know, they become your new family that you hang out with, especially when you're on location. Was there a camaraderie? Was there a sadness and nostalgia when Return of the Jedi wrapped? When Jedi wrapped? You know, I, I don't know. You know, it's interesting because on Jedi, I was up with the second unit, so I wasn't with the first unit when they maybe wrapped their shooting. There very well could have been. You know, most of the time it's, you know, people are happy when a show wraps because you're just exhausted. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you can be sad that the movie's over and stuff, but after these very tough, grueling, ordealing films, it's like, you know, thank God, we're done shooting. You know, I finally get to sleep more than five hours a night. You know, I can... I have to be on my feet 14 hours. You know, people get, 
it's a very demanding, physically grueling business. It's like, you know, the other jokes besides, you know, what's worse than something going wrong is not having someone to blame it on is it's not all sunglasses and autographs. You know, it's really hard work. It's just hard, hard work. You know, I mean, harder on some departments than other departments. And because I was mostly in the production department, it was always very tough, you know, but I was generally happy when we finished shooting. It was like a big, big relief, you know, it's like, let's move on to the next phase, you know. Let's have a real meal and go to sleep and not worry about getting up at 5.45 the next morning to be at work at 6.45 and work till 10 o'clock at night when dailies are over and try to eat dinner and, you know, live a life, go to sleep and get back up again at 5.45. It's just a real slog, you know. Jim, thank you for entertaining that last bonus question. My last and most important question is, did you have fun talking to us today on The Writer Experience? Yes, very much. I had a great time, and I think you're a great host, and you prepared me, and you asked really good questions, and I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to listening to other ones and listening to mine, and I wish you lots of luck in you know, the future of the writer experience. I think you did a really good job, Court. So hats off to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Did you want to plug anything? Shout out anything? Is there a social media, a website? I know you got a website. Do you want to plug that? My website is just a holding site for email and stuff. I don't have a website. The only thing okay. I would plug is to tell people to go watch Warning Sign. A lot of fun. Good, good yeah. horror thriller. You know, very particular to what's happening today in the world. You know, keep in mind that it was made 35 years ago. Very interesting. You said uh, that's on Amazon? It's on Amazon. Disney owns it now, I think. But Amazon is renting it. So you can rent it on Amazon. I was trying to get the folks at Hulu who Disney owns now, as I understand, to, you know, put it up on their site and publicize it and play it. I haven't looked lately to see, you know, what the reviews have been like on Amazon or whether I haven't read anything about it. You know, I think that what I need to do with that is to find out who the who the current social media influencers are, you know, for reviewing movies where people go to them and talk to them and get them to plug it, if I could, because I think if people That's a good saw idea. it, they would yeah. enjoy it, you know. That was what was sort of recommended to me. And like, how do I get people to go? I mean, there's nothing in it for me financially, you know, at this point. It's just interesting. I would just like people to see it because I think they would enjoy it because the subject matter is so, you know, topical and current, particularly when it comes to, you know, biological, you know, genetically engineered biological warfare. And the fact that what we were doing 35 years ago, fast forward to today, you can only imagine how much more interesting it must be. You know, I can only imagine what they're doing down on the key four levels at Fort Dietrich, Maryland, or in, you know, places in Moscow or China or North Korea. It's pretty frightening, you know, which was interesting when the pandemic all launched, everybody kept saying, oh, this was a top secret bio-warfare lab in Wuhan, China, you know, where this bug got loose. And, you know, and I heard that and went, oh, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. That's not true. You know, this is just a bug because people got hungry and there were, you know, virus, you know, mutated out of one species into another species. That's sort of my belief, but nothing surprises me anymore. Check out Warning Sign. Thank you. Especially right now, while we're in a quarantine. Check out watch Warning Sign. Go Support. watch a movie. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> and if not, post a review and let me know. A lot of people have seen it and they, you know, they think, oh, that was a fun movie. You know? Sit down, grab some popcorn, sit back, watch the movie. And turn the sound up. Make sure you turn the sound up because we had a great sound designer, a man named Alan Splett. Who is you know one of the great sound designers? He's since passed away, but he did the 
sound design work on Amadeus and a bunch of other movies, and he did a brilliant piece of sound design. I can talk about Warning Sign for a couple seconds if I can. Sure. So what we tried to do on Warning Sign, it was Hal's first movie, and what I wanted to do is surround him with the best production talent possible. So the cameraman was Dean Cundy, who did all the Back to the Future movies and lots of other movies with Bob Zemeckis. The editor was a guy named Bob Lawrence, who either was nominated or won an Academy Award for Spartacus. He was a great editor. The sound designer was Alan Splett, who I just spoke about. And so if you sit down and watch the movie and turn up the sound, you'll really appreciate what a great soundtrack, what a great piece of sound design, not music, but like the sound effects that go into the making of this movie and how spooky and wonderful it makes it sound. And it adds a whole other great dimension to watching the film that most of the time people don't appreciate or understand, but it's sort of in your subconscious that you, if it's okay, you hear it, but if it's great, you just become even more engrossed in the experience. And the production designer was a great old-timer named Henry Bumstead, who had worked on a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies. And he just did a wonderful job with the production design. So it's, you know, for what was at the time a low-budget studio movie, we just had all of these great, talented Hollywood professionals, you know, working and collaborating and contributing to this movie. And I think it all shows up in the finished project, which, you know, sort of goes to the saying, you know, from a producing point of view, it's, you know, we're only as good as the people who walk through the door every day. Meaning, you know, when you make a movie, it's not the actors and it's not just the director. It's all that, you know, rich, creative, collaborative talent that you surround these people with to make it a great movie, which is true of all the movies you know, that I've worked on that have been successful. When you look at who are the other people who are behind the camera, you've got a great group of people all, you know, showing off their talents in each of their particular skill sets. You know, somebody said, what's the trick to making great movies? It's like, go out and hire the right people. You know, it's very true of all things. Get a great group around you, you know, who know what they're doing and make your work look even better than it might be. That's probably a good place to leave it. Love it. Check out Warning Sign if you're listening. Jim, it was an honor. Seriously, I can't say enough how much it means for us to have you on the podcast. I still feel like, you know, we didn't even cover one-tenth of what we could cover, so maybe we could have you back on. Thank you, Jim, again, for your insights and your time. It was an honor. My pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.